Welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. We are talking about a portion of the tyrant's tomb today in which a whole lot of things happen. <laughs> From gods of Egypt to raven attacks to gods dying and being summoned. Oh my god, there's so much going on. We have to parse through this together. We've got some lovely returning guests, so stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to a portion of the book that I may or may not have finished rereading before we started recording today. <laughs> and I have lots of questions about plot logistics and also discussion questions about Apollo's character. So, hi, Carter. Hi. <laughs> How's it going? Oh, you know. I don't know. I dare you to elaborate and tell me about your life. <laughs> things are going. There's a lot of things going on, but hopefully in like three days there will be a lot fewer things going on. And I'll just be ferrying my roommates around Oahu in uh, Little <gasps> Mazda 5 and not thinking about looming Grad large school. future things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds so lovely. We've got Jackson returning to us today for the first time in a short while. Hi, Jackson. Hi. So happy to be back. Yeah, you specifically many, many months ago requested to be here for the ending portions of The Tyrant's Tomb. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I have been counting down the days. Very happy to be back. Counting down the minutes. The, by the minute, yeah. Yeah, any thoughts on so many announcements that have been made about the TV show since you've last been here? Um, yes, every time, I will have to say, I am pleasantly surprised by the casting decisions every time. And I'm also kind of wowed by who they're getting because it's not insignificant people who are agreeing to be in this show. <laughs> and every time I go, huh, that's good. That's how I feel, too. I'm like, okay. Budget only increasing. Yes. And Robert, welcome back. The damn mean page co-host of Entering Storybrooke of That's the Sitch. Previously, you had other podcasts as well. <laughs> yes, podcasts long ago. One might be coming back in the new year. <gasps> Stop it. Is Hal returning to us? Maybe. <gasps> okay. Oh, wow. Keep on the lookout for Into the Riordan verse. Yeah, I have to find the theme song MP3 because I definitely lost it when I switched computers, but I'll find it. <laughs> well, very exciting. Everybody stay tuned for that. Again, as I said, plenty to discuss today. We <laughs> are just going to talk for an hour and see where that gets us. So potential spoilers through the end of the book. Um, I'm sure if you're here, you've already read it. But just a warning, we will possibly be talking about events through the ends of The Tyrant's Tomb today. So Carter, would you like to tell us where we last left off and dive us into Sutro Tower? Yeah, we last left off climbing the tower, trying to find the god who's stopping all the communications, who also maybe we have to get the last breath of in order to summon help. And specifically, we last left off with, as you might remember, certainly we have a conversation between Reyna and Apollo that healed her with laughter because of how absurd it was that he would ask her out. Anyway, yeah, that brings us to the top of the tower 
or to the top of the tower. I think we actually specifically left off climbing up the tower and being attacked by uh, a bunch of ravens. We left off last week with Ethan, like two pages before the end of chapter 24. There were just a couple of lines we didn't touch upon. Like her smile made her seem like a different person, a happy different person, which is again, so heartbreaking for everything we know about Reyna, but also lovely. I'm so happy for her that she got a good old laugh out of Apollo. But also it is crazy how much of her identity is wrapped up in like suffering and bearing the weight of everybody. Yeah. There's also a line where just when we think that Apollo has like been humbled by her <laughs> laughter and has learned a small lesson after we've been talking about his past with the Sibyls and all of the people, not just women, but also people in his life that he has wronged. He says, the moment she rejected me, she never seemed more beautiful and desirable. Which A, terrible, and B, is exactly that scene from the pilot of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend where Rachel Bloom is talking to Santino Fontana. And he says, you're pretty, you're smart. Actually, the sound was trending on TikTok for a while. What? Okay. It was like, you're pretty, you're smart, and you're ignoring me, so you're definitely my type. And she says, I'm sorry, what did you say? He says, perfect. <laughs> Once we're here at Sutro Tower, there's like zero guards, which is confusing to us. So Reyna goes out to scout around, which leaves Megan Apollo alone to have a classic little Megan Apollo discussion where Meg is like, why is Reyna laughing? This is so weird. And Apollo's like, don't. And she's like, did you ask her out? And Apollo's like, I... And she's like, that was stupid. And he's like, <laughs> and he, you know, he's like, hey, did you know about peaches and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, yeah, I already knew all of that. I know Lavinia's gone. I know she's, you know, rallying the nature spirits. And Apollo's like, well, did you also know that I love you like a sister? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yeah, which is very sweet. The relationship between Megan Apollo, thoughts, Jackson, Robert. I love it. I think she like puts him in his place. She doesn't care. She's a fantastic character. I am very upset that this book is not from her point of view, or we didn't get like the split chapter thing that we got for all of uh, Heroes of Olympus, because I would love to wow. get some some point of view from her. Plus, I love when we get perspective from the other gods, like Demeter is a huge goddess who is never talked about. And they're like, oh, there are the children of Demeter fucking growing wheat. And it's like, no, this is a crazy girl who can control trees and plants. She travels through flowers. Yeah. She's got some amazing hooked rings that, with Roman training, like, I think she's such an interesting character that unfortunately gets tossed to the side because Apollo is like, I'm really important, despite the fact that I'm a total asshole. Wait, I'm thinking about how fun it would be to read this book with, like, every third chapter from Lavinia's point of view. <laughs> and it's just Lavinia being like, I'm so gay. gay. She's so gay. <laughs> Rick does a weird thing. I don't know. I feel like no one's talked about being Christian or they don't talk about their okay. faith. Yeah. And then they're like, yeah. We've had they're this like, conversation. <laughs> but they're just like, oh, just for a little bit of flavor. She's got a Star of David pendant around her neck. And it's like, okay. It's and a dash of culture, you know? It's like a little sprinkle. Just a little salt bay <laughs> meme of... Uh, yeah, exactly. It's a little... Uh, <laughs> representation matters. Robert's opinions about Apollo and Meg. I've seen this trope done before of the over-pompous, full-of-himself character having to do a quest or an adventure with, like, a bratty little kid character... And at first they don't get along, but as the adventure goes on, they become close. Like, I've seen this before. I can't <laughs> name an example right now, but just because it's been done a million times doesn't mean you can't add anything new. 
unfortunately trials of apollo does not add that much new to that little dynamic but it's still very cute it's very nice for apollo and meg to have this dynamic of bantering but also being in each other's corners and like loving each other like siblings yeah i'm also trying to think of an example and nothing is coming to mind but it exists i know it exists. yeah i, I, yeah. I can yeah. give it in my brain i agree it certainly exists well yes uh, turns out there are no guards because the guards themselves are ravens. And everybody, what is a flock of ravens called? A murder. Or is that a crow? That's crows. It's a conspiracy. conspiracy. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Reyna and Meg are like, well, we need intel on like how to defeat these birds. We have no idea what to do. So like, tell me what you know about them. And Apollo was like, oh, back in the old days, ravens used to be gentle and white like doves, but they were terrible gossips. One time I was dating this girl, Coronis. Don't know how if that's if that's how you say that. I'm sorry. The ravens found out she was cheating on me and they told me about it. I was so angry. I got Artemis to kill Coronis for me. Then I punished the ravens for being tattletales by turning them black. Raina stared at me like she was contemplating another kick to my nose. That story is so messed up on so many levels. Just wrong, Meg agreed. You had your sister kill a girl who was cheating on you? Well, I... Then you punished the birds that told you about it by turning them black, as if black was bad and white was good. There is a lot to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> How does that make us feel? Well, Meg and Raina are just like, you suck, Apollo. And Apollo's like, yeah. I was a god then. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, that doesn't make it better, buddy. That's a good line, though. I <laughs> It's a little heavy-handed at times, but I think that the the instinctiveness, the way that he pulls that line out is, I thought, fun. And um, telling about his journey, even though, like, this whole, entire book is just chapter by chapter stories of all the terrible things that Apollo has done and other people being Intentionally. like, oh my god. That's gross. That's bad. I'm against it. And Apollo being like, oh my God, yeah, that was gross. That was bad. That was bad. <laughs> I am against it. And then everyone just like Apollo like kind of feels bad, but then like This is why everyone I, should go to therapy because it works. This is why everyone should go to therapy. But also, as we're about to see, not like three chapters later than that from this, Meg and Reyna are out there like risking their lives pouring all of their psychic energy literally into this magical communication about how great Apollo is and all of the things that he's done that make it worth it. And the pacing of it is so interesting. We're like, this is here and we acknowledge it. And everyone is all like, oh my God, that yep. was so bad. Apollo used to do such bad things. Oof. Oof. Mm -hmm. And we're about to pivot real quick. <laughs> yeah also there's a line well shortly after this also where apollo says tarquin had orchestrated all this with me in mind like from the sibyl to the ravens quote he was forcing me to confront some of my greatest hits of dreadfulness end quote so if you've been reading like we have and been like wow a lot of this book is apollo confronting his past at least we now know like that is intentional and that this is the book where we're really supposed to come to a head and see some true character development i guess so that we can launch into the next book yeah somewhat liking him and feeling as though he has made some progress not just through the plot but also like as a person that he's somewhat learned his lesson from zeus it's funny because theoretically you're supposed to have already started liking him after the whole jason grace thing last book but like he's still not exactly there for me yet i feel like that makes sense though like if yeah. once what happens with jason makes us empathize with him and then into this book we're like how do we take those feelings of empathy for apollo and then challenge them relate them back yeah challenge <laughs> yeah. them and make them make sense with what we know about what he has done in his past which is what we're doing in this book it's just very nice i don't know if y'all have noticed it it's very nice that pretty much i think jason's death is more or less the halfway point of yeah. um something of fire what's it called oh my god 
The burning maze. Maze of burning maze. There you go. <laughs> Something on fire. Something on fire. Yeah. It's like more or less the halfway point. So you have two and a half books of Apollo being full of himself, and even literally when he's insufferable. Insufferable. Even when he's getting called out rightfully, he's just sort of like, you know what? Whatever. I'm sorry. I guess. But everything after Jason's death is less. I'm sorry. I guess, and more like, wow, I was a really big piece of shit. Who knew? Yeah. I also want to revisit that quote real quick and just say, Rick and your musical puns are so cute in this. He says, Targwin had orchestrated all this with me in mind. He was forcing me to confront some of my greatest hits of dreadfulness. That's the kind of like musical language I want to hear from Apollo, not like shaming Britney Spears. So I'm glad that we've hit that stride here at this point in the fourth book of his voice and his POV. Sure. I was like, I see what you're doing, Rick. You're a writer. <laughs> we figure out the way to defeat the Ravens is truly like literally, it's, this is just comes from Apollo remembering what Percy did, right? Yeah, literally, it is a callback to the Sea of Monsters, which is fun for us. It's fun for us because Percy made his way through the original series by recalling and asking Annabeth to recall what great heroes before him had done to defeat creatures in these circumstances and now here's apollo himself a god recalling what the great hero perseus jackson did to defeat a flock of birds he said we're adapting the canon the canon is dynamic we've remixed it so many times <laughs> at this point i think that's really just a pivotal aspect of like greek mythology or mythology in general it's mm-hmm. stories being passed down on like how did this hero do it? Well, he learned from this hero who learned it from this hero who learned it from this person all the way back until, you know, someone at the beginning eventually figured out how to beat the the monster or how to pass through the area. I, I think it's probably so refreshing also for people when something like this happens and it's like, oh, damn, do I need a story from 5,000 years ago? It's like, oh, no, Percy did this last week. Like, to have, <laughs> to have a tale or an experience that you can, you know, recount that wasn't centuries ago or you have to find some stone tablet, you can just be like, oh, yeah, no, some dude at the chariot races just totally got rid of these birds. I feel like that's got to be refreshing. People will always say, oh, Percy Jackson is like fan fiction of Greek mythology, which, of course, in itself is true. But also, <laughs> Greek mythology is itself fan fiction of Greek mythology. Like, like Robert just said, it's constantly being... Remixed and back in the day before the Odyssey was written down, the oral storytellers who would recount these tales to people, it wasn't, they wouldn't repeat something that they had memorized. They would have basic plot points and turns of phrases that they would incorporate into telling a general story and they would change little details depending on who they were talking to and where they were telling the story to make it relevant to the people who they were telling it to. Literally, fan fiction anyway. is so much more in the historical canon of how humanity has done storytelling and conveyed meaning and shared the wisdom of the ancestors than the idea of a published book. No. Plato was out here being like, how dare we have writing? You will lose the true intellectual <laughs> traditions of your forefathers. Like, you need to memorize things and you need to feel stories in your bones and you need to have dynamic interactions with the people around you to make things relevant to them. And and that's on fan fiction. Not And that's on not us the having a podcast. <laughs> That's also on every time I hang out with my friends, we spend hours just recounting what movies and TV shows we've watched <laughs> to each other so that we ourselves don't have to read or watch any of those things. But like but making them participate relevant, in them. You know? <laughs> yes. 
I'm counting out the time that we just walked through Prospect Park and spent like five hours explaining to Carter the plot of the Atlas Six, which took literally five hours. And then I in turn went home and I explained the plot of Atlas Six <laughs> via you, Sarah, to my roommates because we are in line with the true tradition of storytelling. Plato would be so proud of us. Okay, anyway, we defeat the Ravens with Dean, Dean Martin. Martin catching strays. Poor guy. Dean Martin's not all that bad. Pour one out. Listen to one for Dean. I mean, it's Christmas. Everyone's listening to Dean Martin right now. I don't That's know when so this true. is going to come out, but like, you did listen to Dean Martin <laughs> shortly before this. This is such a specific musical choice to shame. But yeah, Apollo belts out some Dean Martin and we make it past the Ravens to pretty much the top of the tower, eh? Mm-hmm. Where there's like a storage box. Yeah like, yeah, like a big storage container. A shipping container. Yeah, there we go. That's what it is. I have a hard time visualizing this because shipping containers are very big and <laughs> towers are very skinny. I guess the tower is just not that skinny. And that's okay. No, go off the tower. <laughs> you don't need to be skinny. Yeah, we stay on chunky towers here. Let's go. <laughs> Carter, do you want to mention the line about Hawaii? Because we do have to shout out every single time Hawaii gets we brought up We have to shout sports. it out every time. Paulo makes a comment about saying that he actually is not the mythological manifestation of the power and the hopes and the dreams of the sun for Hawaii because um, he's too tired and he doesn't want to go the extra, whatever, three hours. Um, and maybe he a little bit spilled with that. Maybe he said... Sovereignty in Hawaii, Hawaii is, is actually Western civilization. Not a natural yeah. part of America. Um, maybe he did it, but maybe he did. I think he did. Another important line tracking his development. He says, one godly skill had not abandoned me. Lying. But don't. Those gods be lying. That's the one trait they all share. Basically, we approach the shipping container and there's this strange bubble of soundlessness. So finally, as we've been climbing the tower, we've been like, does it feel soundless yet? Um, finally, we've reached where we assume the soundless god must be probably inside of the shipping container. It's reminding <laughs> me weirdly of Daredevil. I don't know who oh here watched god. that. Yes, that's exactly what this is, where it's like industrial and mysterious, but also like... Literally in Daredevil, probably someone was imported in a shipping container. That sounds yes, right. Yes, it was literally a child warrior. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So we're entering the soundless bubble, and this is the start of a very interesting section in the book because we literally are not able to speak or hear, but the function of soundlessness is like itself a force in this space. So we can feel the weight of the soundlessness and we can hear like the crushing power of silence, which is a very fun experiment in imagining. It reminds me a little bit of Oculus and when we had to think about the feeling of pain and suffering and what it means to be like encompassed by that. Carter, take it away. What is going on in the shipping container? Because um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I literally need help. Okay, so... Mechanically, what's happening is a few things. First of all, the soundless god is in there. The soundless god is named Harpocrates. Although we don't know that yet. At this point, yeah, from the outside, what we can tell is that there is some sort of magical amplification of the soundless god's power, confirming the earlier hypothesis that this is connected to the reason why demigods haven't been able to communicate with things that are not the U.S. Postal Service, which is, I guess exempt from <laughs> the radio wave power of, of this god. Despite it being controlled by Lin-Manuel Miranda? I don't know. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a casting. We need a little bit more soundlessness there. <laughs> Definitely. Oh! Nope. Oh! 
I'm with Carter. Oh? <laughs> Wait, is there anything else that we're supposed to say about this? Um, at, Arabic at this, writing. At the early stage, yeah, there's Arabic writing. And so we're making an educated guess that this is therefore a Ptolemaic god, which is to say that it is a god who is a part of this specific legacy of a history when um, Greek people colonized Egypt. The Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt is widely considered to be the end of the, like, pharaohs. Like, Cleopatra was a Ptolemaic queen, and she was considered to be, like, the last pharaoh. But it's a little bit weird because they were all Greek people. They were not ethnically the same as everyone else in Egypt. But they ruled over the kingdom for, like, the last section as it kind of slowly fell and then eventually, obviously, was um, absorbed into the Roman Empire. So that's the specific history that we're thinking about. Apollo is in the process, I think, still, right, of figuring out who it is with this new yeah, piece of information. Yeah, he doesn't actually figure it out until he whips out the arrow of Dodona. There are these little clues, like, Meg has been smelling roses as we were climbing the tower because roses are his symbol and the Arabic writing is a clue to us. But he's like, oh, for the love of gods, I just can't figure out what his name was. So he pulls out the arrow of Dodona, not knowing whether or not the arrow of Dodona will be able to speak. Obviously, the arrow of Dodona doesn't have a mouth. So we should assume whatever way in which it communicates with Apollo may still be able to function here. Apollo himself says that he tries to talk to the arrow and his vocal folds vibrated, but no sound came out. A disturbing sensation I can only compare to drowning which absolutely terrified me. This isn't the last <laughs> time that drowning was a scary thing for a character in a Rick Riordan book. Oh, that was a good callback to Percy Jackson's character development or lack thereof in or The Heroes of Olympus. Thereof. <laughs> uh, this little moment between Apollo and the Heir of the Donut is hilarious because it's pretty much just like rudimentary 20 questions Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's I was giving like, how 20 are we questions. So it's many giving, pages on uh, this. Pictionary, maybe? Like, it's, it's giving DD, we reached like a puzzle moment and we just have to spend five pages like figuring out what is going on here and playing a little game to keep us interested so that we can keep going with the plot after. And the clues are things like your favorite Marx brother. Like, girl. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, why not? Thou art killing me. Hippocrates is thy hint. The name thou seekest is most <laughs> like it. Thou needest but change two letters. I love the arrow so much. There's, there's a part where Apollo's like, okay, so it's ju I just narrowed it down to all the dudes in Egypt. And the arrow's like, well, reason, sir. Thou hast narrowed it down to all the dudes in Egypt. Verily, the name doth begin with an H. The arrow, I can just feel, is like trying not to lose its shit. He's like, how many more hints can I give you before this feels less like you've you solved it and more like I told you the answer? Yeah. Remember when last book, we just like did a crossword together and that was Literally, like three chapters? that was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it keeps my attention. It's fun because, I mean, frankly, like how many of us could have called this one? I certainly could not have. So I was very much in that boat where I was like, I have no idea yeah, it's who like this god really is. really a satisfying payoff. So I guess we had to find some other way to keep it interesting. Um, we do get an explanation then of who the god is. It's Hippocrates. And Hippocrates is, as I say, a Ptolemaic god, which is to say that this is a figure who existed in the like Egyptian pantheon before, you know, like before the Greeks got there, but once they did, they, you know, like infused basically different beliefs about what this god's roles and duties were. They give this backstory about how Hippocrates was related historically to Horus, but that when the Greeks came, they were just like, oh, we don't know about that. We just see like a, a child who is making a shushing motion and probably we're going to assume that this is some sort of deity of like silence. And because of that, Hippocrates was just like reinvented and became just some deity of silence. 
with maybe an ambiguous cultural history that um, a lot of people don't know about who are in the ruling class. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that interesting that this like motion of putting like a single finger to your mouth is a gesture of silence that we've had for thousands of years? Because like you can absolutely make noises when when you're in this pose. I guess it's that. <laughs> Anthropology is so interesting. It's like <laughs> literally the noise you make when you have your your finger up to your mouth is like the I guess the quote unquote universal sound of silence. That is wild. Like what like what those Greeks looking at that statue and being like, oh yeah, child god of silence. I am no better than them because I looked at that statue and I was like, that is in fact the child god of silence. <laughs> that too is what I would interpret from this. <laughs> Apollo was explaining all this to Meg and Reyna. Like, they built shrines, they started worshipping him, and boom, he's a Greek-Egyptian hybrid god. And Meg is like, how is that possible? Like, she is not quite as up-to-date on the lore of the Riordan verse as we are, of course. Um, she's like, how could this be? Like, how could a god simply become something else? And Apollo says, never underestimate the power of thousands of human minds all believing the same thing. They can remake reality, sometimes for the better, sometimes not which is obviously educator Father Rick in putting his POV in, again, what is this book? 2017? 2019? It's like a lesson. I mean, we, he, he seems to be getting really interested in this. And we've, we've had like little tidbits of him being like, oh, maybe Aphrodite is different because Aphrodite is not like, parentheses, like not actually from the Greek canon originally and was um, worshipped by people in other parts of the world before. But shout out to this this is like him being really really explicit about him even though even as he's like yeah this is a god that no one that you the reader have never heard of and i'm gonna refer to as a d-list god but but more <laughs> but cultural anthropology about how um worship patterns are um migratory <laughs> also i was i do have to do a plug here for a book it is an anthropology book about how people make gods real to themselves. And I thought that the actual processes by which people psychologically make this work for themselves is so interesting in thinking about the way that the lore of the Riordan verse works. It's called How Gods Become Real. It's by T.M. Lerman, who's a professor of anthropology at Stanford. Totally recommend it. Very cool nonfiction book. Anyway, so Harpocrates is being imprisoned. Yes. Before we knew that he was a child, essentially, and like, not really, because he's an immortal god. But before we knew that he was this tiny child god, we thought that whoever was the soundless god was, was probably working alongside the emperors. But it becomes very clear to us that he is, in fact, trapped, imprisoned, functioning as a slave to the emperors. Um, what I will say is that what I think Rick always does very, very well is pulling up the lesser known stories and giving those light. And what I think is fun about this and what's always fun reading his books is figuring out the lore and the multi-levels that it goes down because also we're dealing with you know minor gods and goddesses and he said he calls him a d-lister but like this d-lister it, it reinforces like you got to do your, you got to do the work you got to know your shit you got to do the research and then you can you know take over the world as three all-powerful immortal roman emperors but i think it's like <laughs> that's true it's showing that like you can't just be a surface level person and you have to take accountability for all of your actions and remember what yes. you've done and understand yes. how deep down things trickle and things go and mm -hmm. that's what that's what I really like with all of this is like yeah we're not just dealing with oh you have to go deal with this very well known villain like already we're dealing with three secret emperors you know I, that that's the story building and the storytelling and the world building that I love that Rick does. Yeah, it's super detailed. Well, you just you don't see it come. This is one of those things where it's like, oh, I had no idea that this was coming, 
this was yeah. a super fun surprise, and I felt like, oh, this is what I loved about the original Percy Jackson books. I was like, oh, I feel like I'm learning while I'm reading, which is always yeah. fun. Yeah, fun to be learning about new gods and stuff that we never heard of at, like, you know, being 23 years old and learning more about the weird intersection of these gods that I never heard of. Um, and there isn't actually, you wrote this, right, Carter? There's no, like, actual mythological basis of a relationship between Apollo and Hippocrates. Not as far as... A Google will find, but... Yeah, but Apollo within the Riordan verse apparently bullied Harpocrates. (laughs) Which tracks so hard because Meg is like, he looks 10 and Apollo's like, so? (laughs) We know Apollo loves bullying children. One of his admirable traits, truly. The the, the two godly traits, bullying children and lying. lying. (laughs) Yep. But this is what makes him, what makes Harpocrates one of Apollo's greatest hits of dreadfulness that supposedly is why Tarquin maybe brought him here. But also it's interesting if you think, like what you said, Jackson, if the Roman triumvirate sat down and they were like, y'all, so we need to cut off communications. Can anyone think of a really obscure god of silence that we could (laughs) capture? Like, how did this come into play? They absolutely put into Google, like, god of silence. And they're like, oh, Harpocrates, where's he at? Let's go find him. Well, that's, yeah, let's go well, get that's him. the thing is that, well, they mentioned the reason that they couldn't find him. They essentially tried to do that in the Roman, like, at Camp Jupiter's records. They're like, oh, we couldn't find this god of silence. And that's right. what I think is fun because these these emperors are trying to think, you know, one, two, three steps ahead of the gods because the gods will be like, damn, who, like, who's the god of silence? Oh, none of us. I wonder what they're doing. And they're being led on a wild goose chase and... It was like, yeah, because yeah, they're all too smart for their own good. They, they're not thinking of this because the gods are so out of touch, which is unfortunate that these, you know, Roman emperors are much better. I mean, emperors dealt more with the people than the gods ever did. And then they <laughs> elevated themselves to god status. Yeah, I miss some of like so part of what made the original series so like the pacing so fast and like also what made us so invested in Luke was the way that we would constantly be checking back in with Luke and the Princess Andromeda through Percy's dreams. And we were constantly like seeing him plotting and scheming and seeing how he was multiple steps ahead. And in these books, we don't get quite as much of the dream check-ins with the emperors. And also we just like, you know, we don't care about them quite as much. We don't see them plotting as much. Yeah. Um, but it would be cool to see a little bit more of what's going on in their plans as opposed to just like, oh, they're attacking by sea. Um, <laughs> because it's very elaborate. Yeah. How did the shipping container get up here? You want to read Who a chapter it? about um, cranes? <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't be racist, Carter. There are other Japanese birds besides cranes. <laughs> That's a line from a play. Um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, we're, we're here. Um, and specifically what's happening is Hippocrates is mad. They're having this argument that is mental where it's kind of giving like one division finale. People are just like pushing thoughts and energies and ideas into each other. And they're like, it's it's giving the Sandman <laughs> battle between Lucifer and Dream. Did you guys watch Sandman? I'm friends with Darian. Of course I watched Sandman. I haven't yet. Oh, okay. There's this nutso sequence in which they're just like, I am a bird flying in the sky. And you just see them like transform. And then they're like, I am a snake coming to eat your bird. It fascinated me from a storytelling perspective. Anyway, keep going. That's basically what's going on. And um, Meg and Raina in particular are really, I found this so interesting because we just talked about the two of them being like Apollo, like you, that thing that you did was bad and I don't like it. And it was wrong. Um, and now they're like, Apollo is actually so important. We're going to all collectively experience all of these memories that we have together of Apollo. 
doing interpersonally nice things for me, a person who he has a good relationship with, and therefore we will all conclude that Apollo is a good person and would not do the bad things that he did for millennia in the past. And that's just a really fascinating decision. And like, I wonder if we, the reader, are supposed to look at that and be like, yeah, okay, I'm on board with that. Because I really feel like I was reading this and being like, I guess Meg and Raina are doing maybe what they have to do. But should that be able to work? Do they really believe this? Should we believe this? Like, does Apollo believe this? I don't understand how anyone is experiencing this and being like, yeah, after all the things that we've done, we feel like Apollo has earned this redemption and Reyna isn't like out there communicating something along the lines of like, I think Apollo is actually kind of <laughs> useless and bad, but like, I can fix him. So like, you should <laughs> not destroy him right now or something that is like a little different than this message of like redemption for him which is what we're meant to be experiencing on a deep visceral emotional level and what ultimately works. Like, Hippocrates is sort of convinced by Reyna and Meg and also the Sybil who's around and <laughs> dating Hippocrates, maybe. <laughs> what the fuck? I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. This was the I only relatable moment. This was like one of maybe two relatable moments that Apollo's had where he's like, y'all, are you two? Wait. <laughs> Y'all together? What? We we, we all have those two people we know where we're like, really? You two? Together? Really? Except Apollo does not know them. He's rolling up and being like, huh? I really need to understand how the immortal child god of silence and the ashes of the symbol of Kume are smooching. They're exploring each other's emotion waves. Exactly. um, Mental power blasts. Mental power blasts. Oh, yeah. I think I'm mostly just scared, I've decided. It is a little frightening. (laughs) The literal line is, quote, wait, are you two... He was so real for that. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of quotes that I can't cite the page for because my legally acquired PDF does not have the page. There's something about this section, (laughs) this entire tower section, that for some reason Apollo has a ton of lines that hit hard, but also, like, doesn't excuse his character. We have one that says, here we are at the wrong end of forever, neither of us in the right form to choose the other. And I'm like, that goes hard. I don't know why, but it fucking does. One of, if not, I believe, the last line the Sybil says, I forgive you, not because you deserve it, not for your sake, but because I will not go into oblivion carrying hate when I can carry love. Uh, queen shit queen shit period yes exactly yes and that is literally i think that that is the only like tangible at least to me valuable perspective on how to <laughs> are you putting on makeup for your party right now i'm still participating i'm actively listening <laughs> um i felt like that was a tangible way to carry forward with how to relate to apollo and also you know how to relate to terrible people you don't have to forgive, but if you are passing it into the afterlife, this is a beautiful way to do that. Yeah, forgiveness is for you. It's not for them. Yeah. We can only carry so much hate before it weighs you down so hard and you cannot function in your life. It is hard to be angry <laughs> all the time. And sometimes you have to be, but sometimes you have to forgive, not for them, but for yourself. It's a balance. Yeah. It's all about balance. It's a balance between being a hater and, and mercy. being merciful. And Shout out to... Canon, the um, <laughs> Buddhist deity of mercy. Is there anything else for us to say about this? There's some like little, like, I guess, plot mechanics, odds and ends that we haven't talked about that are just like weird and that maybe we should comment on very briefly because they're so weird. This whole time, there's been a prophecy about how Reyna is going to open the shipping container. And the way that she does that is by um, supporting Apollo using her child of Bologna powers while Apollo breaks open the container. 
Okay. That makes sense to me. I that makes sense. Counts. Yeah. They have a discussion about it. It's like, does it count as yeah. Raina opening it? If she's like giving her power to Apollo to open it and Rain is like, look, if, as long as my contribution led to the end result, I think it counts. Yeah, I was like, that's a little bit lampshading, but we'll allow it. We'll proceed. Did they say something along the lines of, look, we are running out of time. If we can cheat the prophecy, we're going to cheat the prophecy. There he is. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we need to speak be- briefly about like the weird Horcrux thing that's going on here where the emperors have these axes <laughs> that are their symbols of power. The axes are like binding Harpocrates here, but also it is really trivial for Meg and Raina to just break them. And afterwards, we're led to believe that maybe the emperors are going to be really weak and easy to kill after all of this when we meet them in battle because their sacred power symbols are gone. You saying this is the first time I've heard of any of this. I do not remember in the slightest reading about any of this. It's just so funny (laughs) to me that Rick really, like, I mean, you could really read this as a way of saying fuck J.K. Rowling because he really said, like, there are these symbols of power and they're really easy to break. You know, they contain part of the essence of the god and if you break them, then you'll make them much easier to defeat. But also, like, (laughs) this is not something we're going to spend any time thinking or caring about. This is just going to be something that we happen to run into (laughs) as we're doing this other little side quest. And, like, oopsie-daisy, wouldn't you know it, I guess it'll be easier for us to kill the gods in, like, five chapters. (laughs) That's shady as fuck. He said, why would you write a whole book about that? That's embarrassing for you. (laughs) (laughs) Rick. Um, That's my interpretation. Everyone's has, you know, an opinion. And that was, that was what I took away from that. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And they they choose to stop existing. That's really like the most profound moment of maybe the book. We've, we've seen gods unexist before. Pan, most notably. Pan, very famously. But the energy we're getting here is very different, where it's it's like partially we're getting the same energy of like, oh, people don't know who we are anymore, and so our energy is already kind of fading, and maybe this is part of the natural course of things. But also, we're getting these lines about, you know, duty and sacrifice and a connection to something that is bigger and an idea that, you know, actually that there's something very profound for them, that they're not just sort of like giving up and passing on, that they're like making a choice. Yeah. And that, wow. Wow, what a moment. Especially because Harpocrates was imprisoned against his will for these past who knows yes. how long. And because Sib- the Sybil was also imprisoned in the cage of immortality, which she never asked for, if we remember. She did not want that. That was not for her. Apollo was the one who forced her to exist for this long amount of t- period of time. So for them, it really is a release. They are not just like unaliving themselves. Uh, they are really freeing themselves in this moment. And it's really profound for especially Hippocrates because we just, in the pages just preceding this, we've seen how much anger they're carrying to the point of like the quote that we were discussing earlier. You could make the argument that like Hippocrates still has things that he wants to accomplish. He has scores to settle. He has goals. He has wishes. He has desires. And yet in spite of all of those things, he's saying like, I will release these things partially because I think that this is important for you to achieve these ends that you've laid out. But also because I think that it is time for me to maybe transcend these desires. Wow, that's profound. What's profound is back to the whole point of like, it's incredible what, you know, thousands of people can shape into reality or whatever the quote was. Yeah. Like it it shows that yes, gods Mm -hmm. have a say in this, but also people need to own up for their actions. I mean, this god didn't ask to be the god of silence. He was rebranded as the god of silence. And then, <laughs> so true, against his will. Against his will. And then for thousands of years, people have forgotten about him. So he's trapped in this form that he never asked to be in. 
and people forgot. They didn't hold up their end of the bargain with these gods who, you mm. know, can't necessarily exist. It's the part that gods don't ever want to mention of, like, they need the people to exist, and they also need people yeah. to allow them to not exist. Mm. It's only after they reach a point of such energy weakness that they can choose to sort of mm -hmm. fade away. But, yeah. like, it doesn't sound like Apollo has the power to fade when Camp Half-Blood still exists, when Camp Jupiter still exists, when people still yeah. know him. So it, he, he, in a sense, is also trapped. But I'm also not here for the Apollo apology tour. Like, I don't like him. This is a good segue into page 294, where after they disappear, Reyna says, can a god do that? Just choose to stop existing? I wanted to say, gods can do anything. But the truth was, I didn't know. The bigger question was, why would a god even want to try? When Harpocrates had given me that last dry smile, had he been hinting that someday I might understand? Someday would even the Olympians be forgotten relics yearning for non-existence? I used my nails to pull the splinter from my palm. Blood pooled. Regular red human blood. It ran down the groove of my lifeline, which was not a great omen. Good thing I didn't believe in such things. <laughs> Wow. We should also briefly just call back to the last time a god stopped existing of, the, of his own free will, which was Pan back in Battle of the Labyrinth. Yep. The only connection I can really see is sort of a, my job is done, I'm no longer needed sort of theme. And that's like very broad. I think when we think about these books as middle grade slash YA, wherever you want to place this series, it also reminds us that this is essentially a weird sort of backwards coming of age for Apollo and that to him he cannot comprehend why a god would want to choose to stop existing like for him right all he wants is his immortality back he's learning how to be human but he is like a young god in every way he is a son and a newer more modern god and whatnot and he cannot comprehend the peacefulness of non-existence <laughs> and like what would shoot wants why somebody would choose to not have immortality so taking the scope of immortality out of it it's just him realizing that like oh yeah like at a certain point you've lived your life and then you're ready to be done with it outside of the context of of godliness that's a lesson a lot of people learn in white books like oh i'm not gonna live forever and at some point you realize that that's okay yeah and maybe Apollo is not realizing that, and that's also okay. He'll get there. Yeah, and also that things change and, and dynasties rise and fall, and someday the Olympians will be forgotten relics. But not if Rick Riordan has anything to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a scene. Shout out to the Sybil. The Sybil, really, she went through it. She had a terrible hand dealt to her, and yet, if we were to announce someone to be a winner, it's her. She won. <laughs> she um, wrecked everyone's shit and no one has a greater claim to ultimate and lasting uh, peace and prosperity and um, vengeance over her nemeses in the form of success and I'm um, not caring about her anymore <laughs> than the Sybil. She is queen and victor in the I don't care wars and we salute her for that. Yeah, I'm not encouraging everybody to pass into non-existence when they break up with someone. <laughs> To prove a but point. If you, were trapped, <laughs> if you were trapped in immortality due to a crappy god who you worked for and never intended to date, and because you said no, they turned you into a pile of ashes, which you've been trapped as for 2,000 years, and then eventually you start dating that god of silence from Egypt, and then some comes along a bunch of demigods to free you, then you can peacefully pass into non-existence and choose it to be a victory. And you'll be cool as hell doing it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
should we get a little bit into the last act of this before we close out here today? Um, especially because I want to hear what Jackson has to say about the final battle. Oh, we can zoom. We we close up. We fight the Ravens. We get back down. We go off back to join the battle at New Rome. There's a slight issue, right? Doesn't the car like tumble off the freeway into like a mountainous yeah. area? Lavinia Almost has to rescue certainly. them. Second time in this book that we drive off the side <laughs> of a freeway in the Bay Area. We cannot have a normal drive. What comes out of this that we do need to talk about, unfortunately, is the fact that Lavinia comes to rescue them. And when Lavinia shows up to rescue them, she, you know, she can't just offer them assistance. She has to show up and be like, I'm actually um, at the midway point of my secret covert ops mission that um, was not sanctioned or discussed with anyone I else. I love her. In Camp Rome. I, I'm sorry, she lost me with this one. I was so upset. I was like yelling at oh. the book. I could not stand her. She, okay. She has this interaction with Reina. Reina's like, Lavinia, like, nice of you to show up right now, but where did you go? You deserted. You, like, you need to be a part of your community and help out your friends and do what we're all agreeing to do. And Lavinia's like, no, that's dumb. And she says, quote, when we all get back to camp, you're going to thank me. You'll tell everyone this was your idea. That, I don't know. Like, I feel like I'm okay with impertinence mm. in, in the right situation. But, like, not maybe it's just because Raina, I love Reyna and Reyna's authority is not to be questioned. But, like, you... It's not even about authority. It is specifically... Lavinia is... There's something about her deciding unilaterally that she knows what is best for the strategy and for the camp and that she's going to run off on her own and do something rather than propose a plan to her community and to seek feedback and to revise that and to coordinate so that we're all on the same page about what's going on and we've all agreed to do this. No one is alone. That's fair. Well, it seems very Greek. Yes. You know, I feel like that's a strategy that would go over really well at Camp Half-Blood, but that is so not how the Romans do it. The whole point of Rome is like, what Apollo mentions when he first gets to Camp Jupiter is like, oh, this is a Roman camp because you can tell any Roman camp from every other one because they're all the same for centuries and centuries. And it's like, you, there's order, there's structure, there's a chain of command, you have to follow it. Whereas the Greeks are running around being like, oh, dude, you snuck off. Like, we couldn't find you in the battle. We assumed you were doing some crazy plan, man. How crazy. <laughs> I'm throwing Greek fire around. Yeah. I think that what happened was that Reyna left Frank right. in charge. And Lavinia was like, absolutely not. I am not going to be running my plan by Frank. And then, <laughs> like, this is too urgent. There's not enough time. And also, I don't think that Camp Jupiter is necessarily as should I say, inclusive and respectful of nature spirits as Camp Half-Blood. I haven't necessarily seen them be incorporated into the life at Camp Jupiter or even necessarily, like, the armed forces. Um, <laughs> so I feel like Lavinia was like, no one's going to care. There's not enough time to pass this through, like, Frank and everybody else, so I'm going to go and take matters into my own hands, which totally, like Jackson said, is very Camp Half-Blood. <laughs> yeah, I think perhaps there is this interesting way in which she is making sort of confused simultaneous critiques of consensus building and um, a kind of democratic process and also with bureaucracy, which is... You know, I don't know. To me, this is giving a little bit William F. Buckley. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, what I'm seeing in this is a critique that is giving a little bit conservative. And I'm not really um, here for it. And specifically, when after all this, she literally puts Raina to sleep. Do we all remember this? When Raina's trying to have, finish this conversation with her, she literally has one of the nature spirits sing Raina out of consciousness so that she can not mm. hear any more from her and finish her unsanctioned plan that no one else knows about and is on board with. And I frankly, like, obviously it is good that the results are good. 
This really rubbed me the wrong way. And she lost me forever with this one. And I will never forgive her. And I think that we all need to sit down together and rewatch Act Two of Into the Woods, among other great works, and learn a little something about community responsibility and the fact that ethics are determined in a collective because this is literally crazy watching a character talk back to reyna and carter is absolutely off the rails so upset (laughs) no it's fair it's fair i agree we do have to bike back to camp though we do have to bike back to camp shout out to the final scene of pen 15 which is the only thing i think about now when i'm bicycling and also shout out to my roommate maxwell keith ho who is currently reading um, the heroes of olympus books and who literally (gasps) every day bicycles 30 minutes through the bay area i was gonna say that sounds terrifying because the the bay area is notoriously hilly only a gaggle of demigods could bike all the way back to camp jupiter with their supreme quadricep strength period (laughs) apollo is struggling because he also as you might remember now as we have not brought up again this episode is actually and actively turning into a zombie as he is bicycling up the hills that was me bicycling up the williamsburg bridge turning into a zombie (laughs) not knowing how gears work anyway we're off we arrive at camp we get back to camp there's some zombie fighting we also fight these other monsters and i don't know why we're doing this apollo feels an er rick i should say feels need to have this little insert where he's like oh the monsters we're fighting were actually from india and i know this because that one time we accidentally got drunk and colonized it what are we, are we just Get skipping past that? Okay. I guess we're all just going to move right along um, and go to the ritual. Um, Tyson's there. Ella's there. There's a little fun joke about Mad Libs because we're just filling in blanks as we're performing this. And Apollo decides that he's going to summon, I guess not Artemis, but Diana for, you know, the divine help that we're seeking. I feel like Jackson, you mentioned earlier, there were some thoughts about this. Oh, I totally agree with the notes that are in the outline here that it's so anticlimactic because what I thought would have been fun when I was reading it, the preeminent threat that is approaching the camp is the fleet of yachts carrying all of this Greek fire that is just 100% going to decimate the camp. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be so nice if the goddess that you call to summon is the one who Jason Grace promised a shrine to and that they said we're going to build this and that Chemopolea? is Chem- him Chemopolea, and the, the goddess of violent sea storms and the sea and she Whoa. is the one who Jason she Grace their whole swore shit. to I thought good good thought right good it good thought very really, holy shit a really nice full circle thing of like oh we have these gods who are coming. We're going to summon one with a ritual, which seems very weird that this exists to begin with. But we're going to summon a goddess who didn't have a shrine before, who has a shrine thanks to Jason Grace. And who's going to come and say, I feel so appreciated and just wipes that out. Like that I thought would have been really nice full circle. Or if Rick didn't go with that, it would have been just a boss move to be like, we summon the god Apollo. And then Apollo gets his godly strength <gasps> back. For this, like, why? Why? That would be pretty sad. Whoa, I just got goosebumps. I don't, I mean, like, if this were the fifth book, 100%. I do feel Absolutely. like there's, like, a pacing reason why they didn't do it, but also, like, the idea of summoning the god Apollo. The idea, that's for Apollo sense. to summon the god Apollo, that's sickening. For Lester to summon the god Apollo and then have to have a moment of, like, reckoning. Like, if we had had, if, again, if this was the fifth book and there was a little more character development and he was finally, like, having reached some kind of, like, you know, past yes. apologizing and becoming a better person and then having to summon back his godly powers and see as a test for himself whether that turns him back into a misogynist 
misogynistic asshole <gasps> or not. Or if he summons the god Apollo to have it be an out-of-body experience where a different ethereal being shows up and he, as yeah. Lester, has to watch someone else as Apollo. Like, that I thought would have been great. But then, of course, they summon his fucking sister, who's like, no shade to Diana. No, we love Diana. She doesn't but need it to come random. in and solve this problem. Apollo has a sister. It's Meg. Also weird because we are so attached to Artemis. We've never met Diana before in any sense, yep. mm. even throughout the Heroes mm. of Olympus books. We never meet her Roman counterpart. So I was like, this feels so random. She just kind of like pops in and out. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I thought it would have been better to summon Kim Apollea first as like a tribute to Jason Grace or summon the god Apollo which I thought would have been much more exciting. No, Jackson's genius. I'm envisioning um, the season finale of Steven um, Universe is what's coming to mind. There's this scene. This character is like a reincarnation of his mom who is kind of a god, but also himself. And there's a scene where like he like extracts his godly mother apart from himself and they have a conversation where they're like, everyone's really tense. I'm like, oh, like, what is, what does this mean? Like, what does it mean to try and separate two halves of your identity and to say that, like, your divinity can exist as separate from you? And I feel like these are really interesting questions that Apollo is a really good way to interrogate and be like, what would a conversation between the two of them look like? And how, would, yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> this is um, also making me think about evil Regina versus <gasps> nice Regina. Yeah. And how they fucked up the bag so hard on that. <laughs> I think that it's hard well, to do something. End, and then they're like, I'm not going to kill you. Messy. What is but, what is that from? It's from Once Upon, Upon a Time. time. Late okay, season Once you. Upon a Time, which we also host a podcast about. Shout out to Entering Storybook. It's hard <laughs> to do that because I think it runs the risk of being like, oh, half of me is good and half of me is bad, which is something we've been like complaining about with this yeah. whole Apollo thing being like, well, past me did that and not current me. But I think there's definitely a way to pull it off where there's a lot of introspection and <laughs> a recognition of the two parts of yourself having to come yeah. back together. I am personally not against Artemis. I think like twin power, delightful. I think that their relationship is fun when they explore it. But I think the problem for me is that they don't explore it. And that this is a decision yeah. that is sort of hyped on and off. But when every time we talk about it, we don't have thought processes about it. And we don't have introspection. There's no conversations about it. It's just Apollo constantly being like, oh, I'm going to summon somebody. And like, when I do, dun, 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 like, you better be prepared because like, that's going to be wild. And, you know, that's going to change everything. And then when we get to the moment, we have like two pages of him being like, hmm, I guess I had like maybe three options. And um, <laughs> I had given one paragraph of thought to each of them. And I guess at the last minute, I'm going to summon my sister because that's like the most obvious choice. And we're like, yeah, I guess that is the most obvious choice. But then if that was the case, then shouldn't you have been like, it's weird to me that we're doing this and not like if we're going to summon Diana this whole time, shouldn't we've had a conversation earlier on where he's like, oh, when we summon somebody, obviously I'm going to summon my twin sister because we're tight and she's actually going to show up. And this whole quest is going to be about summoning Diana. And that's what we're going to be talking about as opposed to this mysterious God who is to be determined and who presumably we're going to have some sort of fraud and interesting intellectual engagement with like who it is we're going to summon. And then we don't, you know, like that, that's the disconnect for me. Yeah. I think that plugging, if it has to be Artemis or Diana plugging in more throughout the earlier parts of this book about his relationship with her, because I feel like for most of the time that we see the two of them interacting in like the actual Greek myths, it's them like combined using their powers for evil like like we say like artemis like hunting down his pregnant ex-girlfriend you know and so in some way they like murdered all the children of this woman who disrespected their mom yeah (laughs) or like apollo killing orion the only one who artemis ever really loved well yeah depending on your pov on that depending depending on on your pov there's a whole can of worms for that yeah but there's a lot of interesting and weird foundation for their relationship within the myths that would have been interesting to be the things that we were pulling back on as far as his quote-unquote greatest hits of dreadfulness and then perhaps summoning artemis becomes 
something that's also tricky to him because he is, again, thinking about how Zeus himself and slash Jupiter was a crappy dad. And does he even want to be forgiven by this man? And Artemis slash Diana being somebody who is very much in good graces with Zeus. Like every time she gets yes. painted in the Riordan verse, it says like daddy's little girl, like everybody listens to her. Should he feel more complicatedly about asking for her help when she is like so intertwined with the system? And yet we don't have any conversations about this. She's just like, oh yeah, this ritual is big enough for me to show up um, and Zeus was okay with it or Jupiter, whatever. Yeah, we do get an interesting passage here from Apollo reflecting on the prospect of summoning his dad. Um, he, he like lists some reasons why he might summon the dad. Quote, he might even notice the heroic things I'd done. He might make him a god again, etc. But then he says, quote, to my surprise, I realized I did not want my godlyhood back that badly. I didn't even want to live that badly. If Jupiter expected me to crawl to him for help, begging for mercy, he could stick his lightning bolt right up his cloaca maxima. That's big. Wow. Yeah. Does he mean it? Big if true. Big if true. No, for real. Like <laughs> high life or death stakes and the thoughts of like non-existing and stuff like that. That he would rather succumb to zombiehood than grovel at the hands of his abuser who taught him yeah. how to be an abuser himself. And who also is going to be in charge of him if and when he returns to godlyhood. Mm-hmm. Big questions. Big if true. Big if true. The, there's a whole lot of plot that happens between when Diana comes and when the summoning happens. But I do love when Apollo is pretty much succumbing to the virus. He's like at death's door becoming a zombie. And Diana like comes literally in the 11th hour and saves him and like revitalizes him. They have a little like sibling banter that I really like. Apollo tells her that he loves her for, like, maybe the first time. Really? I mean, (laughs) if you're going to choose your sister, it's a good thing your sister's a badass. Girl boss. Girl boss. Defined girl boss. What would have been the the funniest and silliest Scott for Apollo to call on? Maybe just Tynosis? What if he tried to summon, like, Harpocrates? Like, I feel there could have been so many interesting ways for this ritual to go. And I thought that it was a total cop-out. The Harpocrates of it all is really, like, two people died for us to be here. (laughs) And you phoned up. Your twin sister, sister, who you were constantly with (laughs) for the past 3,000 years. Like, is this who we are? Is this what this entire quest of sacrifice was for? For you to be like, there's a special exception for me to talk to this person that I'm normally always talking to, who who I will be always talking to in like two weeks. I don't know. (laughs) I liked that it was Diana. But again, if it couldn't have been the two incredible, incredible suggestions that Jackson gave, I do wish that we had a little bit more setup leading into the Diana. Yeah. But because there also could have been with uh, Kimapalea, there could have been a nice grieving moment where she's like, oh, someone summoned me. Where yeah. the hell is Jason Grace? Jason Grace. Because <gasps> communication and then there could is down. a sweet little mourning moment. Yeah, to charge into battle in the name of Jason. But also she's like, oh, I got, I got summoned. Would have been great. Would have been absolutely fantastic. Rick, call me. I will accept an executive producer role on the show. Period. That goes for everybody here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> call us. Absolutely. Well, we are going to have to pick up with the final battle and the arrival of Diana. Spoiler. Um, Next time, talk about Frank's sacrifice, maybe? Spoiler. And uh, Lavinia and all kinds of things that come with the end of this book. Any final thoughts? Lavinia. You'll see her in hell. You better watch it, girl. (laughs) (laughs) Lavinia, no one is alone. Someone is on your side. side. Someone Someone else else is not. not. This this series is a mess. I'm excited for Nico and Will. We'll, we'll be getting to Nico and Will very soon. I cannot wait to, like, real time. I mean, obviously, people are going to finish the book in one sitting, but I can't wait to, like, real time talk about the book. Like, once it's out, we're going to, like, go a few chapters at a time, probably, and discuss yeah. it. It's going to be really fun, like, actual book club. 
we're all reading it for the first time. Old school seaweed brain. <laughs> but Aww. like if we had done seaweed brain in like 2003, you know, it's so cool. <laughs> 2003 as like preschoolers. <laughs> well, I just mean like as the book is actually coming out, like. Yeah. Yeah. No foresight, just experiencing it for the first time together with uh-huh. everybody in the Aww. world and on the internet and who listens. Okay. Aww. Really excited for that. Thank you guys for being here. Of course. Thanks for having me. Do you want to drop a uh, quick socials? The damn meme page. Oh, me. Yeah. Hi, I'm the damn meme page. Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Damn spelled D-A-M. I co-host Entering Storybrooke with uh, two of these nerds. Figure out which two. And I co-host a Kim Possible podcast. That's a stitch with uh, our, our other co-host, Darian. <laughs> One big happy family. Yeah. Jackson, anything you'd like to promote? Uh, no, but always happy to be back. Love it here. Sick. Love to have you here. All right. Bye, all. See y'all. Bye.